Podcasting, The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings, and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. I'm your host, Gene Hendricks, and we have a bit of a long episode today, but I do want to get some feedback fairly quickly. Our first bit is a new iTunes review, and that comes from Darren and Ruth Sutherland, the uh, wonderful people behind Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds, both great podcasts that you should check out. And they write, uh, everything... for every fan, and that's a five-star review. It says, a fun podcast that covers all corners of geek fandom. Topics are varied and always interesting. Sometimes it's Gene Hendricks on his own, and sometimes he has guest co-hosts. But in either case, the discussions are always insightful. Highly recommended. Well, thank you very much, Darren and Ruth. I'm always happy to hear any iTunes reviews, but five-star ones, obviously, are my favorite to get. And so far, that's all I've gotten. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, that's all I do get. However, we do have some email to go over, and I have three emails here, and they all involve the Muppets show I did with my wife, Michelle. Uh, The first one comes from Jason Trenner, and he writes, Hey Gene, nice to see you talking about the Muppets. Also, yeah, the whole kid thing went out of control after the Muppet Babies. Way out of control. Also, nice selection of theme songs you picked. Yeah, this is a short letter for me. I'm sure you're shocked I didn't talk about Super Robot Wars, the Transformers, Star Trek, and something like the Legion of Superheroes and Star Trek crossover comic. Eh, I can't do that every time. Well, more I'm not in the mood all the time, but whatever. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Jason. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Yes, it's a short email, but I always appreciate any feedback, uh, especially when they agree with me about the, uh, the Muppet Baby setting off something very, very annoying. Our second email comes from Chris and Cindy Franklin. Uh, And Cindy, probably not. (laughs) Uh, It's just titled Muppets. And Chris writes, So, Margot Kidder sunk another fan's love of Superman the movie, hmm? (sighs) It ain't that bad, folks. I disagree. (laughs) But to each his own, he continues. As for the Muppets, I'm looking forward to the new series, but I'm a bit skeptical. It seems like the current holders of The Muppet Flame run either hot or cold. I loved The Muppets film, but Muppets Most Wanted was pretty dull by comparison, in my estimation anyway. I was a big fan of The Muppet Babies cartoon as well, but I get where you're coming from with the over-baby fiction of every property in the late 80s, early 90s. I did like A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, but that's about it. Flintstone Kids and Yo Yogi, not so much. Nice to hear Michelle on the show, and I hope she comes back soon. Chris. Well, I hope she comes back soon, too. It's just we have to find a topic that we're both interested in talking about. Uh, I think I have one lined up that she may work with. I'm going to have to run it by her, and it's going to fit in with the theme of the year. And we'll just see how that works. Uh, I promise I'm going to try and get her on. It's just whether her schedule meshes with mine, etc., 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 which is you know, a whole mess that we've already gone into. We're not going to rehash it here. The last email we will be covering tonight is from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And the subject is, it's time to put on makeup. It's time to light the lights. And I'm not saying that because you don't want to hear me sing. He writes, Gene Gene, the podcast machine, and the extremely tolerant and patient Michelle. Yeah, she is, isn't she? <laughs> Howdy. 
I just wanted to drop you both a quick line to say that I really enjoyed your short Muppet-centric episode in the lead-up to the new ABC TV series. I, too, have fond memories of watching both Sesame Street as a little kid and then The Muppet Show with my parents and older brother when I was a bit bigger. Watching The Muppet Show as a family was a treat for my brother and I. My favorites were always Fozzie Bear, Sam Eagle, and, of course, Animal. I was also enamored with Muppet News and the poor newsman getting all that stuff dropped on him. You watched Captain Kangaroo as a kid, didn't you, Luke? But, but beyond that. Similarly, the Muppet movie and the sequels to it were favorites of mine as a kid, and still remain so to this day, albeit for dis different reasons. The silly stuff is still silly and still makes me smile. But as The Muppet Show had more than one level, so do the movies, generally speaking. Given my love of the music of Paul Williams, having his music featured so prominently is always a plus. Especially in The Muppet Christmas Carol, which has become part of the regular rotation of Christmas movies in my house. Being a Two True Freaks podcast, I do want to mention Muppet Vision 3D from Disney's Hollywood Studios. This attraction is, to me, one of the absolute best in the entire Disney empire because it encapsulates the insanity and irreverence of the Muppets in the span of a 10-minute short. No matter what happens to the park, I sincerely hope that Muppet Vision stays the same. I'm going to put Luke's email on hold right here, and I'm going to say I 100% agree with you, Luke. The last time we went to Walt Disney World, I met up with Scott Gardner, and it was a day that he was working, so we had to... I had to wait until after he was done. Well, Michelle and Kira were tired because we always went at rope drop, you know, the very opening of the park. Now, we didn't stay in the park, so we didn't get the extra magic hour, but whatever. So they were basically done, and we were in Epcot that day. So we went to over where the, the ferry is to go between Epcot and Hollywood Studios. And they, you know, we said our goodbyes, and they went back. They took the, the van back to our timeshare, and I was there because I knew I was meeting up with Scott, and he said that he would, wouldn't mind giving me a ride back. So I got on the ferry, and I went from Epcot to Hollywood Studios. Now, typically you would think, oh, well, Gene, you obviously went on Star Tours to wait and wait for Scott. No, actually I didn't because I waited for Scott for my first ever ride on the new Star Tours. So what I did is, you know, I wandered around the park, I watched the Jedi Training Academy a couple times, but I also went and I did the Muppets. And Muppet Vision, really, I mean, it's, they did it so well, it's like you are sitting in the Muppet Theater, up, down, down to Statler and Waldorf, and having Sweetums come out, and everything, it is very, very well done, and you can tell that Henson was involved with it. Jim Henson, this is not Brian. Not that I have anything against Brian, but the Muppets without Jim Henson, it just loses something. And I think that's where Luke's talking about the, the layering, is a lot of times the layering kind of disappears if it's not Jim Henson behind it. Oh, there's still some there, but it's not anywhere near what it was. Enough of that aside, and we'll go back to Luke's email. It says, I have no faith whatsoever in the new series, which looks like the Muppets put through the meat grinder of adult-aimed fare airing in prime time that is ABC Broadcasting. See also every single show they broadcasted between 8 p.m. through 11 p.m. every weeknight, with rare exception. As you and Michelle discussed, The Muppet Show was truly a family show, in that there was something in the show for the whole family. This new show looks more akin to every other sex and vulgarity-obsessed 30-minute single-camera show on ABC. 
I have no problem watching a show like that with my wife. The Goldbergs is as close to appointment viewing as we have anymore, but I don't want the Muppets to be that type of program. As such, I will not be watching it unless I hear some really good things about it. But that's just my take. I could be wrong. In closing, in the immortal words of Stadler and Waldorf, How'd you get here? I entered a contest. And lost! <laughs> Luke. Oh, thank you very much, Luke. Yeah, it, I've seen the Muppets, and I'm not thrilled. It's it's not it's not a horrible show, but after I I, I want to say the first four or five episodes, I was just done. I didn't feel like watching it anymore. Now I may, since we have gotten rid of satellite and we are on broadcast TV now, plus Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, etc. You know all those streaming services that we already had. The Muppets is on Hulu. I may go back and give it a shot again. I don't know. Uh, there are so many other things I could watch. You know what I mean? And But the, I, I hear they retooled it, but from the people that like how it was, they say they like the retooling, so that kind of makes me leery. Anyway, we will knock it on head there. I do have uh, another email, but that concerns the Fall Guy episode, and we will not be getting into that right now, because like I said, we have an extra long episode dealing with one of my all-time favorite movies. See you on the other side. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Welcome back. And as I explained in the last episode, I do have kind of an overall idea for the kind of episodes I want to do for this year. And they are going to be of a generational variety. In other words, comics or movies or TV shows that deal with either just multiple generations of the same family or occurrences over a long period of time. Now, I'm not exactly sure why this idea came to me. It could be because I turned the uh, uh, 39 for the second time last year. Mm. But uh, in order to do this properly, I am going to be having guests on. And for the first one, I decided to go with a man who I've spoken to on several occasions, but never one-on-one. -on -one. It's always been in a group setting. So, let me introduce a man who some say is performing his own nuclear experiments in order to give lizards gigantosis and severe halitosis 
but all I know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. How are you, hey, sir? Hey, Gene. I'm, I'm all right. And let me tell you, if you don't have to deal with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on a regular basis, I would advise against it. <laughs> they're, they're sticklers for details. They are a pain in the butt. But be that as it may, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I'm I'm real excited about this, um, you know, it, and and you're right. There's a few folks on the on the network that I've we've recorded a bunch of times, but it's never been just a a duo. It's always been part of like a big group show. And I I recently recorded with Tom Panneries, and it was the same thing. It's like I've recorded with Tom like three or four times, and never just just me and Tom. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting because both you and I have I think similar backgrounds. I mean, we're both engineers. We're both from the Northeast originally. Yep. Yeah, we both like giant monster movies. We both like. <laughs> Yeah, and we both like this movie, which we are going to be talking about, and that would be the movie from 1980 that folks who know me know I love, Excalibur, all about King Arthur. Yeah. Now, I first saw this when it was on HBO. How about yourself? I am almost 100% sure that my father showed this to my brother and I, probably on video, mm -hmm. um, when we were growing up. My, my dad was an early VHS adopter, so we always had movies on home video. Um, I'm, so I want to say probably late 80s, early 90s. I was born in 1980, so probably around the time that I was, you know, knowing my dad, probably 9, 10, 11, right around there, I remember watching this one. And uh, and, I, and I've watched it a few times in, you know, in that, in the interim. It, it's one of those ones for me that it's not one that you know it's it's not a movie that i watch like make a point to watch every year mm -hmm. but every time i like see it on the shelf i'm like man i should watch excalibur i haven't watched that in forever. it's a good movie so when you um reached out to me i was about this i was very excited once i figured out that you meant you know um <laughs> John Foreman's Excalibur and not Chris Claremont and Alan Davis's Excalibur. I would because you said, "Oh, I'm doing generational stories. You want to talk about Excalibur?" I'm like, "Sure." I'm like, "There's nothing generational in the Excalibur comic." Yeah, what? I <laughs> see. It, it, it's all I think where you know what order you're introduced to things because I was introduced to this movie before I was introduced to the comic. Whereas yes. I think it was the reverse for you. So when you well, think... and, and it's and it's not even that because you know most people, even even most uh, nerds, you say Excalibur, they will think of King Arthur before they think of the uh, you know Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride and all that. Mm. But I'm I'm known as an Excalibur fan, so it's like. <laughs> Oh, okay. Talk about Excalibur. That makes sense. It's like, <laughs> so I didn't, you know, the, the, the neurons weren't firing on all synapses. When you told me, like I said, it was John Borman's Excalibur. I'm like, that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I, I remember this movie. We, I know we saw it on HBO, but like, your dad, my dad, was also an early adopter of VHS. We had one of those big honkin' top-loading VHS oh, yeah. machines. With with the little, the counter of the three numbers that was the rolly counter. Exactly, yes. Yep. And, and it's odd because Excalibur to, will always be linked to me with Star Trek II and The Sword and the Sorcerer. Mm -hmm. Because those were the other movies. There was another movie on there I, I don't remember. It's probably one I never really watched. But those, it was Excalibur, Star Trek II, this other movie, and then Sword and the Sorcerer were all on the same VHS tape for us. Yeah. Because my dad, not only did he record them off of HBO, but he did have the counter numbers on mm -hmm. the tape and the length of the movie. You're actually describing my dad as well, because <laughs> we had that too. 
It was all it, was, it would be, had a label on the outside of the case. Yep. With the name of the movie and the counter number that you had to fast forward to to get to it. Yep. And oh, that God. and things got really screwed up when that VCR took a powder and we had to get another VCR, but this one had four numbers in the counter. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it wasn't like you just transpose. Oh, well, that just means it doesn't. You know, we just won't get up to a thousand. No, it counted at a different rate. Yeah. <laughs> but. You know that it's a it's one of those movies, and for those of you that have not seen it, this is old school practical effects, really you know everything done in camera, really really well done movie. But it's not exactly for kids. No. Although the one that we had taped apparently was an edited version, because until later in life I saw the unedited version, I never saw the, um, I'll just describe it as kind of what it is, the rape scene of Igraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it just, it's cut directly from Uther taking her top off to the Duke coming in killed. Whereas in the version I have on Blu-ray... It's, and I don't get this, she's completely naked and he just took his cod piece off. That cannot be comfortable. Yeah, that that's like, you know, that that's like the Skidamax way you have sex. You know, the uh, <laughs> the girl's completely naked, grinding on the guy's stomach, and he's fully clothed. You know, right. That's, that's how you know it's hot right there. <laughs> yeah, I've got, uh, as I said, I've, I've got a, uh, I actually still have this on VHS. Because that's how I roll. I've got the VHS release from 1998, and yeah, it's it's fully unedited on that one as well. Yeah, definitely not not a kid friendly telling of the Morta to Arthur, but really, it's it's not that you know. I mean, when you really get down to it, it's kind of a bloody epic. Oh, you know, it it's, is. There's violence and sex and all this stuff in it. So this is a very. I think Borman's goal was to tell kind of the definitive film version of you know, King Arthur and the Knights at a Round Table. And I think he accomplishes it with this because it's it doesn't shy away from those things that aren't so nice. Right. And really, every, I hate to say it, but it's it's almost like every other version of the Knights of the Round Table that I have seen, whether it be from the 60s or that garbage that Sean Connery was in or anything else, they try and sanitize the Knights of the Round Table. They try and make it more high adventure than down and dirty. No, this is kind of what we did. Because really, uh, it's a tragedy. The whole story is a tragedy. Because you have this one shining moment of Camelot being the pinnacle of knighthood, bringing peace to the land, and then it was eaten from within. And I think Borman does an amazing job of showing that rise and fall. Mm -hmm. And the, the movie... Really, the movie takes place over the span of about 80 years, mm-hmm. and it really works out, because pretty much everything else, is they try and take a snapshot of one particular time. Right. Uh, if you look at the musical Camelot, Arthur's already king, Merlin's already gone, etc., so you miss the whole beginning of it, you miss the whole boy king thing. Or if you look at Disney's Sword in the Stone... Right. It ends with Arthur becoming king, so you miss the whole tragedy of it. Yeah. And those are actually two halves of Once and Future King. Once and Future King, right. Which was very interesting when I finally read that book, after seeing both of those movies, is you could pretty much pick up exactly where 
all the threads were going through. Yeah. What's interesting to me, rewatching uh, Excalibur, is how much of the kind of choices that Borman made, creative and from a story standpoint, that now have become sort of like the de facto telling of the Arth- of the Arthur legend, um, the the combining of Morgana and Morgays into yes. one character mm-hmm. kind of the uh you know the the idea the big one i think the idea that uther pendragon ha- wielded excalibur at one point right for arthur i mean that the um i don't know if you ever watched the uh the bbc did a a series called merlin and a couple of years ago that, oh that... yeah i saw a couple episodes of that realized i would have an aneurysm if i watched too much more of it <laughs> Well, that one played a lot on the idea of Uther, you know, having this this reign as king with Arthur there as a young man and Uther having Excalibur. So, uh, you know, some of the uh, the, um, the the depiction of, of Mordred, mm. it's kind of now I, I've seen the idea of where him wearing, you know, the golden armor and the golden mask and stuff. I've seen that in other adaptations as well. So, yeah, they actually they did. They did that in um, Justice League Unlimited. Right, I was going to say, yeah. and then Morgana wore a mask very similar to that in Justice League Unlimited as well. Yes. Where she wore the, she, she looked almost like Madame Mask, where she wore just the impassive mask over her, you know, over her face. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's funny because it, you're right, a lot of the adaptations do focus more on the high adventure the sword and sorcery aspect um, rather than, you know, what, what's in the actual, you know, the Morta de Arthur and the Once and Future King and all the, the, the stories that exist now. Whereas this one kind of embraces them and I think it works better because it gets really to the core of what that story is. You know, the, to me, the Arthurian legends are always kind of, they're kind of like, I kind of put them in the same classification as like Beowulf. Mm. You know, Beowulf is this great adventure story, but really it's a violent, bloody story. You know, a Beowulf is not a kid's story, and the Arthur and the Ra- and the Knights at a Round Table is not really a kid's story, even though we can mine elements of it to make something that's family friendly. Yeah, like uh, when they when they had Arthur King, the quarterback, and his football team go back in time on that cartoon. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't remember that from uh, from Eng- English lit class, but you know, <laughs> not that day at the end. Of the yeah, day. that that was that was an interesting cartoon. That was late 90s i want to say yeah where they had they had all magical armor and their their they had emblems on on their chest plate and that actually became magically appearing their weapon so it was it totally wasn't uh, like visionaries at all no no no, not at all (laughs) (laughs) supernaturals were cooler than visionaries but i digress yeah i mean that's the thing it's the the i even that, like I said, the show Merlin had very little to do with mm. the actual Arthurian legend, but it took elements that are familiar to the viewer, and we understand, okay, we understand the concept. Right, okay, Arthur and Guinevere, they're going to hook up, but eventually Guinevere and Lancelot, they're going to get something going on. And, you know, it, so you, you start, it, it's all these these broad strokes of it that everybody knows. Right. And and I think in, in a lot of ways, Excalibur kind of took people by surprise when it was released, because... Exactly how how you know kind of mature, and I don't mean mature as a code word for um, you know sex and violence, but mature as in just adult. The story was yeah, and if you look at the characters, they're all flawed characters, which they are from the original stories. None, even Arthur himself, the, this pinnacle of knighthood, has blind spots. He cannot see that right under his nose, his best friend is in love with his wife. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, and this is right out of the stories to their credit Guinevere and Lancelot do not do anything about it Lancelot 
purposely essentially exiles himself so he will yeah. not be tempted until and this is where Arthur's blind spot comes in. Qui-Gon Jinn fights Lancelot. <laughs> yes, it is yeah. actually a young Liam Neeson. This see this this movie is the uh, Star Wars and Star Trek crossover. Yes. Cuz Patrick well, Stewart it, plays Le- Leandergrance, who is Guinevere's well, yeah, dad. But it, <laughs> but it goes even farther than that because mm. it also brings in Dune yep. and Krull, <laughs> you know, and uh, and all it goes in all sorts of directions after that and Darkman, you know. Of course. So uh <laughs> <laughs> Neeson, Liam Neeson did not ever see a paycheck he didn't like. We'll just put it that you know, way. My, 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 the, the phrase my wife and I use for that is, you know, he likes to work. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. he's like Michael Caine. <laughs> yeah, Michael Caine. It, this is, it's like the Caine-Hackman theory, you know? Hmm. For nerds, it's the uh, the Stuart-Neeson theory. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but back to your point. Yeah, back to my point. Uh, when Lancelot is he's wounded by a vision of himself that is presumably sent by the Almighty when he prays to remove the lust from him so he can win cleanly. And he's, his armor stabs him through the kidney. Well, he goes through the whole fight with that and finally collapses. And then he Merlin, at the end, says, oh, he's lost the will to live. And Arthur turns to him and says, save him, no matter what the cost, save him. Yep. At which point he puts Guinevere's hand over the wound, says the charm of making, and buggers off. But that is what triggers the affair to actually happen. Because right. that was the price. And that's something that I really like about the movie, is it shows Arthurian magic. And mm. our, all Arthurian magic has a price. Yep. Like in the beginning, when mm-hmm. Merlin changes Uther into Duke Cornwall's appearance so that he can have a night with Egraine, Merlin later says, well, it took me nine moons to recover. That's because he, yeah. he had to pay the price to do that magic, which means he actually slept for nine months. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is a big damn deal. <laughs> yeah. and, and we see it again also at the at the end with Morgana, who's been using her magic to keep herself young and beautiful. And, you know, Merlin, uh, you know, he tricks her into doing the dragon's breath mm. and all of her magical energy is spent. Now we see the cost that this has taken on her, this toll of this life that she's led. And she's this old crone, which I, I always like that bit because Mordred's like, if I can't have a hot mom, I don't want a mom at all. <laughs> yeah, a little Oedipus thing going on there. <laughs> he kills his father, and we presume yeah. he spent a lot of time alone with his mother. So, but uh, yeah, and and you're right. The thing about showing Arthur as a man, you know, that has his his flaws, but he's still ultimately a good man, and that's the important thing. That's what makes him so different from Uther. Right. That, you know, Uther has all the martial skill in the world, but ultimately he's he's not a good guy. He, he's he's selfish. He's stupid. I love the part at the beginning when he has Excalibur and Merlin's directing him to speak, mm. and he sounds like he's reading it out of the script, because he is. <laughs> you know? I, I always thought that was very well well played. But the, this, <clears throat> the, other, the one that I think is another good example of um, Arthur's weaknesses and his blind spots is when he's fighting Lancelot to cross the bridge. Yes. And he and he's so, you know, um, Lancelot even says, is like, we're, we're fighting all this over a, a, a bridge you could have easily ridden around. But his, his pride is such 
that he's the king and he won't let anything stand in his way. So he says, you know, he asks Excalibur for help and it smashes through Lancelot's um, halberd and pierces his armor and, and Excalibur breaks. But then he has his breakdown, which I love because it shows, like you said, that he is flawed, but he knows it and he's trying to do the right thing and be a good man and be a good king. So he, he breaks down into, you know, almost into tears at what at what he's done because of his pride. Yes. You know, he says uh, it was it was uh, to unite all men, not serve the vanity of one man. And it's from I, from there, really, you see, you don't really see his rage again. You see him get upset when Gwen accuses Guinevere of sleeping with Lancelot. But then he com- he basically realizes, no, I can't do this. Yeah. I'm the king. I have to be above this. And from there, you know, he's he's fr- more or less calm. I mean, he has his moments, but he you never loses control again until he comes across them in the woods. Yeah. At which point, that's when he he essentially walks away. He he walks away from his duties, which is why the land declines and why you know, Merlin gets stabbed through the back. Yeah. Figuratively and shown yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah. One thing. Also, that I, I really love about this mo- movie, as speaking of him, is Merlin. Mm. N- Nicole Williamson. I mean, the, the man, for the longest time, this is the only thing I had seen him in. But I've seen him in other stuff now, Spawn being yep. the least among those. <laughs> but I also saw him in a movie, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about South African apartheid, where he was like this bigoted inspector going after Michael Caine and Sidney Poitier. Mm. And it was really, really good because he was such a scumbag in it. <laughs> and he did a great job, but it like complete opposite of the character he plays here. And I think one of the reasons that it's so good is that he has this wonderful wry delivery of his lines. Mm-hmm. And half the time, it's like he had just thought it up on the spot. Like, uh, fork tongue strikes like... like Kablam! Like lightning! Yes, that's it. <laughs> uh, but it, uh, he is my standard. Uh, I've spoken before on the show that I play uh, the role-playing game King Arthur Pendragon. He is my default setting for Merlin. If I have to do Merlin as an NPC, that is the personality I go with. Just because it, he, he's having fun. Yeah. When, they, when they're when they at the siege of Leo, Leon de Grant's castle, and he tells Arthur, go, get the hook, climb up there, throw me the rope. And he's, he's tying the rope to the team of horses, and he looks up, and he laughs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mer- Merlin's got that thing where he's the smartest guy in the room. Oh, yeah. You know, he knows all the angles. So the, it, it, you talk about him having fun when um, when Arthur is healing and they're having the feast and he's talking about, you know, that that you know he doesn't understand love and that that love would lay low a beggar or a king and all that. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, don't rush into anything, boy, talking about Guinevere. He goes, well, you can see the future, Merlin. Who will I marry? He goes, oh, Guinevere, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, it's going to be her. I'm just, you know. Just... <laughs> I'm just telling you, you know, back off. <laughs> <laughs> but he also can flip that switch and get real intense. Oh, you know, yeah. When he needs to be, you know, the, the guy that's going to bring the thunder down, he can do that, too. So, yeah, he I, I really like him because especially since he, you know, he doesn't have the, a lot of people, I think, they think Merlin, they picture the wizard from the Sword and the Stone, you know? Right. The wizened old man with the long beard and everything, whereas this is more probably, um, pro- <clears throat> I don't know if it's necessarily more accurate or not because, you know, it's, 
there, there's lots of ways to in, interpret the um, the story, but this is, I think, uh, uh, um, it better serves this and having him be the, the wizened old man. You know, this is a, a dynamic, effective character this way. And also, Merlin is the other character that doesn't age. He is, he is the same age from when he's helping Uther all the way through until he gets betrayed by Morgana. And right. Morgana doesn't age because she's specifically using her magic. But Merlin, it, it's it's almost like it's a byproduct of him being... And he actually refers to himself as THE Merlin. Yeah. So it's it's like it's a title. It's not his name. His his name in, in the legend is actually Mirrodin. But, Mirrodin, yeah. So he is THE Merlin, or the High Druid. So he mm-hmm. is, as a byproduct of all the power he has, he doesn't age. And given... Af- the scene right after Arthur pulls a sword, he also walks really, really fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, Merlin, where are you? Oh, he's on the other side of the field over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got the Jason Voorhees walk going on, where he can just, you know, right in a snap, he's over there. <laughs> My wife referred to it as Pepe Le Pew. He, he looks like he's just moving at a, a, a slow speed, but he's just there automatically. <laughs> Merlin and Pepe Le Pew. Very, I don't think I've ever seen that connection, but I can see it. <laughs> Especially when he puts his arm around Morgana during the wedding ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mon chéri. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Morgana, played by Helen Mirren, of all people. Helen Mirren, yeah. Uh, young, hot Helen Mirren. They're always hotter when they're evil. <laughs> because, you know, it, it, it lets the natural psychopath... Uh, come out, you know, yeah. for some of these ladies. Oh, and to those people that are have a problem with Val Kilmer having nipples on the bat suit, Morgana had nipples on her armor in 1980, so I don't want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Fail to see how that is going to really protect you in in combat, but she's a spellcaster. She's not supposed. She's supposed to have all these fighters around to protect her, right? Right. She's a support class. Exactly. It's like I say, like I say all the time with Harry Potter, it's like they're going to school to, to become support class. Where's the fighter college? <laughs> Is there a barbarian high school down the road or something? I don't... You know, I have an MBA, uh, Master of Battle Administration. (laughs) Master of Battle Administration. (laughs) Master of Bashification Administering. Uh, but uh yeah so but yeah i mean uh yeah i mean she she's excellent in that because again she's um it, it helen mirren is very she does a great job portraying her you get not only the fact of her ambition but kind of the feminine wiles way that she goes about doing stuff like mm. her and gawain right you know and she's clearly manipulating him but she's not manipulating him with any any uh anything supernatural you know no, she's just playing on the fact that okay well he's He's a drunk. He's, you know, a hothead. Let's just, you know, work this in a little bit. Which is, mm-hmm. it, I find it very interesting because one of the characters that she is a composite of was Gwen's mother. Yes. So it's a, it's another or Oedipus thing going on there where they're right, sitting, yeah. you know, making eyes at each other. But that mm-hmm. also means that Gwen is Arthur's nephew, which they don't mention in, in here at all. But there's a lot of yeah. stuff that gets glossed over for the narrative. And yeah. really, unless you're going to do it as, like, a TV series, you can't do it any better. Right. This There's hit... too many characters otherwise. Too yeah. many characters, too many relationships, too many subplots going on. Like, really, Mordred, in the lore, comes to Camelot not knowing who his father is. He gets mm-hmm. knighted, and he's he's happy, he's great, he's having a good time, but eventually he finds out that Arthur's his father. Arthur doesn't know this initially, and that kind of twists him 
and that's when he becomes the villain. And yeah. but you can't do that in this. You need you no. need shorthand. So mm-hmm. you just have him know who his father is, hate his father because his mother's poisoning him, poisoning his yeah. mind. That is right. Uh, and some here's something else I didn't realize until. I want to say 10 years ago, something like that. I always thought that in the one scene where Morgana is chanting, you know, doing the spell to give Mordred the magic armor, I thought she was unnaturally aging him. Mm. She's not. That's just yeah. showing you the passage of time. The Grail quest has been time. going on this long. Yeah. And that makes it all, all the more impressive that, mm. you know, they can actually survive <laughs> this time because... Really, the Grail Quest is only supposed to take about three years. Mm-hmm. Here, it takes twenty. Yeah, and Man. it's and it's it's nothing but I I like that too because it's it's really this hopeless task that's been set before them because it's the it's the only hope. But there's clearly you know as you're watching it, it, it everything is falling apart because they can't find the Grail and the the land is barren. Everyone is starving. Everyone's you know they're they're everyone's at each other's throats. It's really you know it, it's an impressively done thing. It's and it's very simple. It's there's no nothing fancy about how this is shot or how it's filmed, but it's it very very much puts you in right there with them of the, the 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 pestilence and plague and everything that that is sweeping over the country. So and and like you said, yeah, the the passage of time there when you really think about and and every time you say, well, there's no there's nobody left. There's no other knights left. It's just you, you know, mm-hmm. Percival. So and uh, the hanging tree freaks me out every time. Oh yeah, that's 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 just creepy. It is. I mean, when when he's when he's up there and he has the vision of mm-hmm. what's going on and he's being c- slowly cut down by this other knight's spurs mm-hmm. cl- you know clicking into his his rope but something that took me until today to figure <laughs> out i did not did not notice it until today the vision that percival has both times of the grail and the steps leading up to it is camelot yeah because when mordred goes to visit arthur you, the drawbridge comes down and there are the steps mm-hmm. and it didn't click to me until today when i'm watching i'm like wait a second yeah <laughs> now it actually makes a lot more sense yeah because that's that's exactly what percival it the vision was trying to beat him over the head with no this is the answer it we're in camelot think about it but it's not until and this is not more great visual storytelling it's not until percival at the end of his rope having been rejected by everyone including lancelot who was at the point where my dad called him the mad monk yeah (laughs) and percival strips himself of his armor or all of his earthly cares does he get it? And that's when he he figures out the 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 mystery of the Grail. Yeah. And that's Percival's another combined character. Percival is actually really the combination of the real Percival and Galahad, because Galahad is the one who achieves the Grail quest, because Galahad is so pure right. that he is almost not of this earth. Yeah. So like that time he ended up at the convent with all the women. <laughs> With with that naughty naughty evil zoot, <laughs> I can handle just a little peril. No, no it's too, too much peril. peril. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you're gay. No, I'm not. <laughs> I love that movie. See that that see that's the problem I think also with a film like Excalibur, which treats the subject matter so seriously for a lot of people. 
You mentioned Spa- uh, Camelot, the musical. A lot of people think more of Spamalot. Yes. The musical yes. comes to the Arthurian legend now. And, and you know, don't, you know, again, it's, you know, the beginning of that, of, of the uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, with the very serious sort of take, mm-hmm. when they're, that, that gives way into the talking about the, uh, what is it, llamas, and then they yes. sack the guy, and, yeah, and uh. he has also been, they've been completed at a different style at a much greater expense. So, but it, it's that kind of seriousness about it that I think people aren't necessarily expecting nowadays. We tend to, like you said, think of it either adventure or comedy. But yeah, and like you said, that the whole Grail Quest sequence when, when uh, and, and, and as you say, Percival is a combination of, of Percival and Galahad. And what's interesting with Percival is that just like with Arthur, we see Arthur as a baby, we see Arthur as a boy, and then we see him as a man, yes. right? And then with Mordred, we see him as a baby. We see him being born, and we're watching this, and it's all the all the the, the guys wearing black all standing around, and she's on the altar, and she pulls him out mm-hmm. of of her birth canal, and it's like, and my wife, my wife is a master of understatement. She goes, "Well, that's not creepy at all." <laughs> no, not at all. But we get to see Mordred as a baby, and then a boy, and then a man, and then Percival. We don't get to see him as a as a baby, but he also goes through his generation. He's he's essentially the adoptive son, for lack of a better term, of Lancelot. You know, Lancelot is this very pure, honest, good person who takes this young man under as his own, and then we see him take that role. So uh, the 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 idea of this as a story about generations, about the passage of time and how our roles change and these characters' roles change and through the, the uh, you know, the, the constant moving forward in time, all three of them kind of represent that. And Percival is ultimately the guy that kind of saves the day here. You know, you can't start playing uh, O Fortuna until uh, he goes and, you know, achieves his goal. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like there's one main character in the movie. There's little sections where Arthur's the main character, or Merlin is, or Lancelot is, or Percival is, but it's it's a, an amalgam of all this. Of it's it's almost almost an anthology kind of thing because mm-hmm. you keep shifting focus to different people. Now, arguably, Arthur is constantly the main character, but he's out of it for I want to say an hour of the movie when you have Lancelot's quest where he runs across Percival or the Grail quest where Percival's mm-hmm. coming across all these dead knights or these knights who have fallen prey to Morgana. Yeah. And it's it's really well done. I also like how subtle it is that when Guinevere and Lancelot find out that Arthur knows about their affair, which only, they only consummated it once. Yep. But then they both turn to the cloth. They both become clergy. Lancelot more like a a raving lunatic hermit, but Guinevere goes (laughs) directly from that spot to a nunnery. Yeah. And stays there <laughs> for all that time with the sword. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is not a princess in the pea situation, otherwise she wouldn't have got a good night's sleep for 20 years. No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and but you know, it, it gets, they do in fact address the the idea of them being a Christian society. Yes. And and worshipping a, and, and even Merlin, he talks to Morgana about that. He goes, you know, the spirits, uh, the, the many gods are falling to the one god. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, it, that is something that a lot of times for for various reasons, I think you see getting scrubbed out of Arthurian legend is this idea of them being, um, you know, worshiping the Christian God. Oh, Whereas yeah. here that that's very clearly part of it. And like you said, to the point that any time that that they're when, when they 
have this great offense, this great sin, they both feel the only way to to atone for it is to is to, like you said to turn to the cloth. Yeah, it's but it's also interesting that the many gods do they don't they may be being pushed out, but they don't really lose power because you notice that it's at the end when Arthur goes to the standing stones that he mm-hmm. wakes up Merlin because there's right. it's more or less a direct conduit to the old pagan ideals mm-hmm. and that's how Merlin comes back. Yeah. And so yeah, it's Arthurian legend is very very Christian. It that is the end all be all of Mallory. And hence, you know, the Grail while it is partially based on uh, a dru- a Celtic cauldron where it can feed everybody that it appears to, etc. It's also, it is, to, you know, borrow from uh, Indiana Jones, it is the cup of Christ. Right, yeah. And that's, and I have to say, practical effects with, with the Grail, lovely. Oh, yeah. When when Percival's bringing it back to Arthur, you the camera angle is specifically in a way where it's, hey, look, it's empty, nothing here. Then he brings it over to Arthur, and you can see it fill up with the wine. Yeah. And mm-hmm. lovely. I know exactly how they did it because you never see the bottom of the thing, so you can't see the yeah. hose. <laughs> but I don't care that I know how they did it. It looks great. We we call that movie magic. <laughs> we call that you don't need CGI. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, but but uh, but you're right. It, it the 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 many gods or the the pagan uh, gods as as you know, as you're referring to, they're they still do have their power, and I think it's very interesting because really, you look at the British Isles, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, you know the, the British Isles. I mean, they have their own their own Protestant church. You know, they're they're very Christian as a culture, traditionally speaking. You know, that was the the, the British Empire, right? Right. But to me, I you always got to. I, I always think is you know it's the old saying that you know uh, England is a very old country and a hundred miles is a long distance, mm-hmm. and America is a very uh, young country and a hundred years is a, or is a very big country and a hundred years is a long time. The, England's a very, very old country. The British Isles have been inhabited for a very long time. So there, there's all these old ways that are still, you know, if you really think about it, probably hold some sway if you believe in the, any type of supernatural of any kind. That you you can buy that yeah okay with with all this with the uh, between the um, the Germanic tribes and the the Celts and the Angles and the Saxons and the Druids and all the different peoples that have come and lived in these isles over the centuries that it would be the place where the old and the new the many gods and the one god could probably both hold some kind of sway yes you know that we can that yeah we can we can believe in 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 the one true god and go to church and all that but we know that maybe on you know a solstice you don't want to go to the standing stones unless you want to see some weird stuff necessarily you know right yeah you you go to easter service and then but you still come home and you put out a, a bowl of porridge for your house elf yes so it's uh you know it, it, and so I, I think it's it's you make a great point that even though their their time is over they still hold their influence in their own way yeah yeah they've know? they've to uh, pardon the expression, but they've gone underground. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is where Merlin takes Morgana to show her the the final rites and everything. He he goes under Camelot, his mm-hmm. magical dungeon, for lack I mean, of a better quite, term. Quite quite literally, Merlin had the first man cave. 
<laughs> a crystal man cave, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's pretty sweet down here, you know. Sometimes I need a place just so I can rewind on my own, you know. Don't don't mind the snakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just throw your coat anywhere, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, it's so cool. Oh <laughs> my you're so awesome. How do you know all this stuff? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been around the block a few times. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, now now I'm picturing Excalibur as done as a high school play. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's fast times at Camelot High, right? <laughs> Way to go, Arthur! Woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Shrek three. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> oh, here's here's a question I had for you. I, I was watching this today. As, you know, I'm going to record a podcast on it, I might as well watch it today. And I noticed the kid that steals Kay's sword. Now, this is when Arthur's about 15. He's Kay's squire. Stupidly leaves Kay's sword at, back at their tent, which doesn't lock. It's a tent. Yeah. So some, someone steals the sword. Swords are, ain't cheap, no matter what time period you're in. Swords ain't cheap. But the kid runs, and he's always just in sight. And he is purposely going towards... Excalibur. Mm -hmm. Do you think Merlin either paid this kid or magically conjured this kid to steal Kay's sword? I hadn't thought of that, but now just saying it, it does seem kind of coincidental that he leads them right where he needs to go. And it's because he's, you'll see him in the distance and he's always looking back. It's like, he is following me, right? Yeah. I wouldn't put it past Merlin. I mean, and Merlin, Merlin knew it was going to go down, and he would have known that Arthur was there. I can see that. I mean, you know, because Merlin's, again, he's, um, I, I said before, he's the guy he knows all the angles, you know? Mm. To the point that when something happens that does, that he hadn't foreseen, he's genuinely surprised by it. Yeah, so, like when Arthur kneels down to uh, Orion's yeah. in, in the moat. It's like, he's like, I didn't see this. <laughs> That that's really that that is that's a, a really that's one of my favorite scenes in the film too. Oh yeah. After siege, when he when he kneels down and you can see that it's like you know the the show of absolute faith by Arthur. Not only faith in in uh, in in you know, the, the God will protect him, but faith in the honor and the chivalry of these knights. Yeah, this this man is a knight. I know he will not cut me down in cold blood. Yeah. And it it pays off in multiple ways. Not only does he get knighted, but he gets Orion's to swear fealty to him, and that Orion's mm-hmm. becomes one of his chief battle lords. Yep. Which is, it's interesting, because in the in the legends, and I've read a lot of Mallory, but Orion's and Lot are two of the kings of the north that immediately rebel against Arthur, saying, you know, essentially what Orion said here, a, a boy, you know, do you want a bastard for a king? Because mm-hmm. at that point, they don't know who his father is. He pulls the sword, and it's the sword and the stone. It's not Excalibur. Right. He pulls the sword, and they're like, well, who the hell are you? We're not, I'm a king. I'm not going to bow down to some squire. And they actually fight Arthur for a number of years until he finally defeats them. And then they okay, yeah, fine. Okay, we're beaten. We'll swear fealty to you, no problem. It, so yeah. they speed it up here, but it, mm-hmm. they're they're still being true to the actual characters. And uh, really, Lot's the one that leads the rebellion, not Orion's. But here you have Orion's leading it, and Lot is the guy with the beard and the top knot that 
that yeah. is with Orion. So you have the same characters doing the same thing, mm-hmm. just like you have Leon de Grants, who immediately goes to Arthur's side. Same here, where you have Captain Picard do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I swear, the man never had hair. No. I, I know, was, yes. Born bald, stayed that way, and God bless him, it worked out okay for him. Yeah, and he is he is in some great shape in this movie. I mean, you yeah. see him out of the armor, and he's, his arms are pretty damn big. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And Oh, that's another thing I wanted to mention, is that the armor was all custom-made. Oh, yeah. yeah. The man named Terry English was the master armorer for this, and they that's... I Typically, I would not like the fact that they were in full plate for that huge span of time, but when it's that looks that good and is that well-made, I give it a pass, because it is brilliant the way it looks. Mm-hmm. And, and it also, even again, even though you know, if you look at it from a logical standpoint, you know they wouldn't have had full plate necessarily at that time and, mm-hmm. and all that, but I, I think about the scene at the beginning when Uther is, is ambushed, and it's this, you know, just nasty, dirty fight yeah. of these guys in armor. That was what fighting in armor was. It wasn't this uh, elegant, beautiful combat. It was dirty and gritty and nasty. And I, they captured that so well with this, of them, you know, just looking for the, a weak spot to, to shove a sword in. And, it, you know, this was... Um, this was not a, a, a pretty style of combat by any stretch, and I think the armor does a good job of showing that because it shows us how bulky and hard it is to do anything. You just kind of just hack around in it, hoping that, you know, you, uh, you, you hit a weak spot or you've got a magic sword that cleaves people's arms off. <laughs> yeah, Excalibur's pretty good about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of like Luke's lightsaber in that sense, you know. Yeah, really. Uh, actually, it's you know, it's it's. Um, but any, I won't get into that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so the the armor in, in this is great, and and what's funny is that I was trying to think about this. It's like, where have we ever seen this type of like you know real physical armor like that on a large scale? And really, after Excalibur, you don't see that kind of work, that kind of like you know armory work like that for a large scale like you do here, until you get to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, really. Because I mean, Lord of the Rings was the same thing, where they were forging armor and weapons. You know, they had a whole crew of uh, armorsmiths and weaponsmiths just making the weapons, and that's what they had here, to, to make it look authentic, that it was real stuff that they had. Yeah, and really, every other version of either the Arthurian stories or any, like, knights in shining armor or any of that, they try and keep them out of the shining armor as much as possible, just because they don't want to deal with it. They want to show them, okay, let's see you in court, or let's see you, uh, you know, outside of combat, and then whenever it is in combat, you usually have, like, a surcoat over it so you don't see the armor, so they're hiding as much as they can. Yeah, this, you're right, until between this and Lord of the Rings, there really isn't a lot of mass-armored anything in movies, TV, whatever. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm thinking, like, even, like, the Conan films and stuff, most of the time they're just wearing loincloths. Right. In in your, your, your 80s sword and sorcery barbarian movies like the sword and sorcerer you know could excalibur have been improved if they could shoot the two smaller blades off of it (laughs) maybe the world will never know but yeah and then and and even beyond just the armor just the way that the combat is choreographed Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about when all the when the knights are quote-unquote jousting to see who will have the opportunity to pull the sword they're all just kind of whacking at each other, riding around. It's 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 not um, you know it's not this idealized version of of you know uh, armored combat in the Middle Ages. It it's it's real. It's it it's probably a lot more realistic. Mm. Now, obviously, no, we're not really sure. 
but uh, than than what we would have normally come to expect from this kind of story. Yeah, because you have uh, again to pic- picture it for those you haven't seen it. You have men riding around on horses in full plate armor, and they're carrying. If you think about what a jousting lance looks like, figure that you only have a, a third of the length. So, more or less, it's like a wooden sword. A round wooden sword. So, they're using it as such. Using it to club people, or they're using it to pull people off of the horse. And when that fails, they just hit them with their fist. (laughs) That's how Leodegrance wins the the first bout. He's knocked everybody with this guy off, and he just punches him in the back until he falls off his horse. Because that's how you had to do it. You Mm -hmm. use whatever means necessary to win. Yeah, I have to say yeah. he he swings a mean axe. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when he's defending that castle, he he is killer with that that oh, uh, two handed axe. Oh, and screw people. And I do I do. And we you made the joke earlier about Excalibur as a high school musical. When when Guinevere first catches eyes at Arthur, she's all gaga over him. Oh yeah. Well, she's she, like, oh wow. With that hat she has on and her hair, she looks like a cocker spaniel <laughs> because she looks at him and her head tilts to the side. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh uh, man. Yeah, I I just love this movie. <laughs> yeah, it, like I said, I mean, it's um, you know, my my wife and I we were talking about it this uh, this morning, and she said that it's you know, it goes, it's not that it does anything new with the legend, but it does it in a very it it it's a big budget, well thought out, well produced, well made version of it and i think ultimately that's what borman wanted i think borman wanted to make a film that was about you know the hero's journey and the the stuff that we think about with heroic legends but he wanted to make the definitive arthurian movie and honestly i can't think of a film that comes close to this as far as being the air quotes up to the mic arthur movie right you know we had uh we've had other things that have tried i know we had um the the who was it was king arthur was the one that came out and uh Kira Knightley was in it, and oh. I picked the guy, but I cannot remember his name. But, uh, but I mean, I remember watching that, and it's like, that doesn't even hold a candle to this. It doesn't even make, it's not even in the same in the same field, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah. the, the, the closest one, and I'm trying to remember the name, uh, was back in, what, was the 50s or the 60s? Uh, yeah, just found it on IMDb, as a matter of fact. Uh, let's see, it was called Knights of the Round Table, 1953, mm-hmm. and it starred Robert Taylor as Lancelot. Okay. But it was... The thing about it was, it was more of a Lancelot story than it was a Knights of the Round Table story, because Arthur was more of a secondary character. Mm-hmm. Mordred was already an adult, and he was... He wasn't Arthur's son. He was Arthur's foe. So mm-hmm. it was it was a different take on it. But that's until Excalibur. That was more or less the the gold standard of it. Anything after yeah. Excalibur has been a very poor attempt, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I the first time I tried to watch the movie First Night. Oh God! They had that <laughs> opening crawl where it explains how Lancelot is this mercenary, etc. I turned it off. I yep. got through the opening crawl. I turned it off. The I can tell you literally, and I, this is a complete shoot. The only thing I remember about the movie First Night is that it was one of the it was the film where whatever studio it was what released it, where it was found out that they had a fake critic mm. that would write fake quotes so they could put a superlative quote on their commercials and posters. Oh man! And it was a fake. It was a fake critic. So they they had a fictitious critic 
making up fictitious praise for their films. <laughs> and it's like, clearly, since no real critic would give this movie a good review, yeah. they needed to resort to this. But the the funny part about it is, I, I spent a year at the University of Sheffield in England at, as part of my college uh, life. Mm-hmm. Study abroad program. It was it was interesting. I met a bunch of great people over there, had a fun time. But at the end of it, my parents and my sister came over, and we spent three weeks going around England and up to Scotland and everything. Well, one of the one of the days, my sister wasn't feeling well, so we said, okay, why don't we just hang around here, you know, re- recharge the batteries. First night came on. <laughs> it was on BBC, and my dad and I were sitting there, and I said, I, know, I hate, I, I couldn't get past the opening crawl. And he looked at me and said, no, no, no. we're going to watch it, all right? You're going to watch it, and we'll see what it's like. So we watched this piece of garbage. And at the end of it, he turns to me and says, you know, you're right. (laughs) Of course, that's the same trip where I got the same reaction out of my mom because on the flight home, remember, this is an eight-hour flight. (laughs) What movie comes on but Titanic? Mm. At which point I looked at her and said, I've seen A Night to Remember. It's not (laughs) going to be better than that. She said, no, let's watch it. What else you got to do? Let's watch it. So we watch it, you know, this the movie, I'm about to piss Scott Gardner off, but it's a movie where they said, all these real people, real heroic kind of stories on this ship aren't good enough, we're going to make up these completely fictitious characters in a completely un- illogical situation. So we get through it, and my mom turns to me and says, oh, it looked pretty. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I'm not a I'm not a big fan of the movie Titanic, but I got to give it props. It earned being the number one movie of all time the hard way by getting people to go see it over and over again. Oh yeah, you know it wasn't like Avatar where they simply charged you 175 percent of a normal ticket to go see it one time. But um, there's a movie I still haven't seen. Uh, you're not missing much. I didn't think so. I, the, the, uh, just really quick as an aside, when my wife and I finally got around to watching Avatar, it had been on DVD for like a year or two, mm. and we got it from Netflix. And so we put it on, and we watched it, and like, okay. And then we stopped it, and uh, this was on the old setup before, this is back before you had to have a cable box. You just have regular cable running the television, right? Right. So so I stopped the movie, I popped the DVD player, DVD out, I turned the DVD player off, cable comes on. Mm. What movie is on, I don't remember what channel it was, but what movie is on? Alien. <laughs> It's like, ah, so this is Cameron making the same movie, just turning around which side we're rooting for. Aha, okay. I said, I said, I would watch Aliens twice, then watch Avatar again. That's how much better Aliens is than Avatar. Because it's like, oh, okay, it's it's like, it, it, if they weren't, you know, big Smurfs that rode on the back of dinosaurs and we all had, had big pretty eyes, if they were xenomorphs in that forest, we wouldn't be cheering for them. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know? Be like nuke them from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. But you know. Oh man. Well, I'm glad I haven't seen it. <laughs> You're not missing anything. When when Force Awakens beats it, it'll be a good day for everybody, except James Cameron. But you know. But he directed he he directed Piranha too. So. Well, I think James Cameron is also is already not a fan of uh, the new Star Wars movies just because they pushed back Avatar two because they knew they can't compete with Star Wars. Well, in any event. You know know what's a good movie? John Borman's Excalibur. Why, yes it is. It's an excellent movie. Yeah, all that, you know, it's it's, like I was saying, but as far as telling a a, a cinematic definitive version, I don't know that a film could top this because this is, in a lot of ways, kind of the perfect storm Mm. because you had, you know, you're coming out, this this is in production in 78, 79, so it's the tail end of 
the 70s and the changes that have gone on in Hollywood. Jaws has come out. Star Wars has come out. The tentpole film is now the it thing in Hollywood. That that revolution has as is, is well underway. Mm. This is a film that doesn't. It's not a science fiction film. So the special there, you know, we're not pushing the envelope with the special effects. Everything is still, you know, we don't have any models or motion control or you know matte scan or anything like that that we had to use with the big science fiction films like. Star Wars, The Black Hole, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, even even stuff like 1941 and other big budget effects movies from that era. So you you still have the kind of traditional way of doing a lot of these effects, but you can do them very well if you have time and money, which Borman did. But we're still at the point where we're there. There's no CG, right? So you're not going to do it with CG because that's not that's 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 science fiction. It doesn't exist. Whereas now, even in a film that wants to do as much as they can with physical effects, eventually they're going to start relying somewhat on digital. And I don't think that you can accurately or honestly tell the story of Arthur and the Knights at a Round Table with CG effect. You just can't. No, because it was it was the Dark Ages for crying out loud. I mean, really, the only thing you may possibly get away with is some magical effects. Like, if you actually have the Pentecostal feast where the grail appears at the round table, then I could see some CG going in. But I would still, even if you're going to do that, I would much rather be a practical effect. Some right. t- The way they did Merlin uh, talking to Morgana in this after he's gone to the dream world. It's, it's a... A, a double exposure essentially yeah but it looks great it looks like they're both in the same space interacting with each other because the timing is great on it mm-hmm. and it works she puts her hand right through him yeah so you can yeah. you don't need cg you can do it practically no. there's nothing in the knights of the round table maybe the troit boar but we're that's that's kind of way out there for for anyone <laughs> unless they really know arthurian legend that might be the only thing, or some grail stuff, but it's about men in armor hitting each other with swords or doing courtly activities. There is no need for CG at all. Right, yep. It's, it's not even, again, to reference Beowulf, it's not even like Beowulf where there are monsters. Right. And the, okay, you can understand the idea of, okay, well, we need Grendel or Grendel's mother to be a, a CG effect because what we want to do, we want to make it look like it couldn't possibly be human, whatever. But, you know, uh, the Morta to Arthur doesn't have that, like you said. So there's no need for it. I mean, one of the best and most subtle effects in this is whenever Excalibur's around, they have the green light. Yes. It's just the lighting technique, but I'll be damned if that doesn't make, you know, make it really look special and mystical and a little mysterious. Just having the green light playing on things as if it's, you know, that there's there's some kind of depth to this metal that's not just steel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just simple things like that can go a long way. And unfortunately for a lot of filmmakers, they've kind of gotten away from that, away from the idea of doing something simply but doing it effectively. Uh, there's not so much economy anymore with uh, with special effects like there used to be because, you know, it, it we'd rather just splash it all over the screen instead of being subtle with it. Yeah, that, as, as a general trend, anyway. Right, and that's that's something that makes this movie so rewatchable is how subtle some of the stuff is. It's things that you don't catch on the first, second, third, fourth, even fifth viewing mm-hmm. that you suddenly it's like, wait, okay, I'm I'm now watching this movie that I've watched a lot before i'm gonna look at the background stuff and i'm gonna see what's going on back there 
and there, there's just this layering of, of everything. And even, speaking of the Green Glow, it's not limited to Excalibur. Mm-hmm. It's any time there's a, a, a decent amount of magic going on. Like it, when Merlin is taking Morgana down to to that dungeon to the, to his man cave, yep. it's lit green. Mm-hmm. Any anything that has to do with the magic happening, there's a subtlety there of the green, and that goes back to the the Celtic gods, spirits, what have you, because they're nature based. Right. There is a, one of the one of the Celtic gods is the green man. Mm-hmm. It's it's all the natural stuff. That's why the Excalibur, which is from that world, from that otherworldly plane, has the magic built into it. That's why it's got the green glow to it, because it is of the old world, of the old gods, mm-hmm. even yeah. though it's being used by a Christian man fighting for his god. Right. So it's a, it's a nice dichotomy, and that's, that's yeah. what a lot of the Arthurian stuff is about, is not everything only has... Let me say that properly. Things don't only have one meaning. Yeah. There's a lot of subtle stuff in the Arthurian legends, especially where you, when you actually get into the Grail Quest stuff and the mm-hmm. Fisher King and everything. If you don't treat every, if you treat everything at face value, you are going to lose. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Like I said, I mean, and the the other place where you know again if they were trying to make this story again today, where the CG would be bananas, is after. Uh, you know when Arthur's riding out after the uh, after he's drank from the Grail, mm. and you see the land coming back to life. Yeah, you know it's it's it it just kind of everything just kind of blossoms. I mean, it it looks a little odd, but a little odd just because everything in this film has a kind of stylized nature to it. You know, it, it's it's a stylized reality, but it's it's beautiful and and it and it's effective, and it doesn't need to be all over your you know shoved in down your throat for you to understand it. It it tells it 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 expresses its very uh, efficiently and it's just seeing all the flowers blooming and everything you know i mean especially again compared to all the scenes we've seen of desolation it's again a wonderful contrast and a very effectively done simple little effect yeah it's for some of it it's just they're riding through a blossoming orchard Mm -hmm. You, you don't need much more than that yeah you have a little bit of stop motion with the flowers blooming and etc but or not stop motion um time lapse But it's just having them riding through those blossoming trees. It it says, the land has been reborn. The king is back. The land has been reborn. You don't need to be hit upside the head with it. You don't need someone proclaiming, oh, well, the the crops are back. Oh, the the animals are... No, it's it's there. Subtlety works. If you don't talk down to your audience, they will appreciate it. It, it's also a great, great example of Maison Sen because the visuals of that combined with, because there's no dialogue, but just combined with the music. Mm-hmm. As I mean, the the knights on the on the ride with, <laughs> you know, with O Fortuna, and it's and it's a, oh, it's it's a, just a great bit of Maison Sen of bringing it all together. And I mean, that's that's just a filmmaker's shot right there. Oh yeah, you know, that that's a filmmaker scene. That's something that uh, you know it's 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 all the all the different disparate elements come together into one composed uh, element. And it's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's terrific. And I, as you brought it up, the the music in this movie, it's not entirely original score. They use Wagner. They use Orf with O Fortuna, but then they do mm-hmm. have some original music with mainly the um, I call it the Grail theme. 
where you have right. the the choral music going when you have the the Grail or the Lady of the Lake showing up. But yeah, just using that classical operatic music and it works so well here because mm-hmm. this it is an opera. It is a bigger than life tragedy, which is what most operas are. It the you know these people are not getting out alive. <laughs> I mean, what did Bugs Bunny say? What'd you expect yeah, at the opera? Yeah. Happy ending? <laughs> yeah, and no, the 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 use of as I said the use of the classical music is is great, just because to me it's almost like it's like a better use of how in in the last twenty years or so from about the mid '90s, certain filmmakers would start using pop music, mm-hmm. and the idea of using the pop music was okay. If I use the pop music here in this scene, I don't need to write dialogue because the pop song will put people in the mood that I need them in anyway. Whereas here, I think this is a, a kind of a better example of that technique because it's not using a well-known pop song. It's using, you know, as Professor Allen would say, a Wagnerian jam, you know, <laughs> old school to the to the nth degree, uh, but it still is evocative and it and it's and it's set very beautifully to the visual so now you i mean if you even if you've never seen excalibur if you hear o fortuna you're gonna think probably along the same lines as the visuals that we get in the film it may not be the men in armor but it's going to be somebody riding and it's going to be the, the the building to some great and terrible action that's going to be coming down the road very quickly yeah yeah and even the opening where you have the text come up you know mm-hmm. the dark ages and they have the the i believe it's uh what the funeral of sigurd or whatever the name of the, the wagner piece is it's just yeah. it, it works a dun 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 it, it just and then the the title in silver mm-hmm. <laughs> and it looks i i'm gonna have to say it was actual physical letters with yeah. the light reflecting off it oh it's beautiful mm-hmm. works so well visual sound everything and then it just goes right into the the initial battle with uther yeah being you know completely nuts but that's what he does <laughs> that's 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 his thing man don't he? <laughs> yeah oh and i have to say if there's one moral that you take away from this movie it is do not make hasty o's no because <laughs> uther make... sw- swears that yeah okay i get i get to sleep with her and you get whatever comes out of that no problem here, I'll yeah. s- I swear it. Percival. <laughs> Arthur says, you must find the grail, and we'll find this grail or die. Well, guess what? Everyone else <laughs> dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I, you know, Uther's like an object lesson on, you know, before you make a decision, you really need to look at what returns you're going to get from your different options. You know, I'd, yeah. I, I recommend that everybody... Who goes if if you're a uh, you know if you're going to college or trade school or whatever see if you can take a class in microeconomics and learn opportunity cost <laughs> if nothing else because if Uther had taken microeconomics 201 he might have decided you know what I could find some pretty hot pieces of tail being a king maybe I don't need to go sleep with the grain at the cost of everything else yeah but much like you don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. You don't yep. make political decisions when you're horny. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, pretty much. You know, it's uh, the old saying that, you know, God gave us two heads and only enough blood to run one at a time. Yes, and we know which one he was running with most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the one up the, the, the one up top, he'd had it for how many years? It hadn't worked right yet. So. <laughs> well, he just washed his hair and he couldn't do a thing with his head. Yeah. <laughs> 
the the Uther on Merlin is much more charming. He's played by uh, oh, he's played by the guy from Buffy who was her mentor or whatever, the okay. British guy. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's very charming and well spoken, but he's still a bastard and he's still a warmonger. So he's a much more interesting character on Merlin. But here he's like it's like oh, you just you watch and you know he's got to screw it up because that's Uther, right? Right? It's not Arthur. You know he's gonna make some stupid ass decisions that set the rest of the plot in motion. But you're just like I must have her. It's like dude, serious? <laughs> really? It's like, look around you, man. There's, this place is crawling with chicks. You're the king. I'm pretty much you could have Ed, except this one. But, you know, it's just like boys don't want to play with their toys until someone else tries to. And then they have to, you know, assert their, that their ownership. Well, you so, see, you he, know, he had never heard of Mel Brooks. It's good to be the king. Good to be the king. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, see, that's another thing in, in the... I don't remember so much in the Mallory, but in the Pendragon source book, the role-playing game source book, mm-hmm. you actually, you start out when Uther is king. And that goes for several years. And you start to see subtly in this, he's kind of looking towards Igraine, because she's at court with her husband. And you see some of this stuff to the point where at one point, the Duke and Igraine flee the court at night. They just get get up and get gone. And then Uther goes after them, and that's what leads to the siege that we see here. So yeah. in Excalibur, again, it's it's all sped up because you can't play that out. That would be a movie in itself, really. Yeah, right. So, yeah, but it, that's just the way Uther's character is. Is He, he is much like some of uh, the people I know. He is for immediate reward, not mm-hmm. thinking of the long term. It's just, I right. want her, I'm the king, I don't give a damn. And it's like his lieutenant right next to him is like, are you insane? The Alliance! <laughs> we just finished this, damn it! It's like, yeah. It's like, someone's like Mr. Incredible. I just want the world to stay safe for just a little while. <laughs> and and Merlin is great. He's like, yeah, sure. What you, you'll give me whatever comes of it. I'm a, okay. I'm game. Whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, because up until then, it's like, Merlin, you must help me. Must I? Because <laughs> he's got an attitude in the beginning. Yeah. I, I just spent years getting this alliance done, and you, you have to screw it up in one <laughs> meal. You can't even make it through dinner without screwing yeah. this up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why we don't read the legends of King Uther in the round table. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the name Uther has also not survived to the modern day either, I'd like to point out. So, yeah. Clearly, clearly, um, a good call on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, like I said, it, this this was just a lot of fun to watch. Visually, this film is just so beautiful. It is. It, look, it looks so much different than anything else. There's no other film that looked like Excalibur between the way it's shot, the way the actors look, the way they do the age makeup, the young and old age makeup, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, Nigel Terry, he plays Arthur as as everything but an infant, you know. And he his acting is really well, too, because as he he's essentially supposed to be 15 when he pulls the sword, yeah. his, he's acting like a 15-year-old. He's like, yeah, I, I pulled it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Please forgive me. Don't don't beat me. <laughs> yeah. And he he works. Then he's the young king who's enraged and prideful. And then he gets into oh I'm the the chief law officer. And then he's just old and tired. 
<laughs> until the Grail revives him. It's yeah. he. It's an amazing job of acting, especially if you see him in anything else. Like he I'm was trying to think what else I've seen him. In. Well, he have you ever seen The Lion in Winter? I have seen The Lion in Winter. He plays John. Oh, okay. And John yeah. in that is a conniving, sniveling coward. Mm-hmm. And then he was also in an episode of Doctor Who. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. I believe it was David Tennant, but he was a. It was they were on an alien planet and they were in a war. And the Doctor had figured out after a little while that this war they've been saying has been going on for generations. The war's only been going on for about a year, and mm-hmm. they keep cloning people. Well, Nigel Terry's in charge of one side, and this is this is. You know, in the 2000s, so he was older. So he had white hair, he had a white beard. But as soon as he spoke, it was like, King Arthur! Because <laughs> he has this habit when he's excited of adding an R after the W's in his words. The yeah. lore! <laughs> it, it, I love it when we, we, we associate someone so much with one role. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 I'm sure they, as actors, don't appreciate it, but it's like, that King Arthur over there, you know? <laughs> and then he, he was on a TV show, yeah, I got, I want to say it was in the 90s, about a medieval, uh, it was a medieval situation, and he was the head of one of the, uh, one of the, the families, I think it was like, mm. the main character or whatever, but I, the, the one thing I remember about it is they got the horses right. Because even in Excalibur, they're riding riding horses. Yeah. Whereas an actual knight, his war horse was more like a Clydesdale. Right. Because you need as much force behind it as possible. Well, in this TV show, that's what they rode as their war horses. It's a huge, like, draft horse. Yeah. It, w- it was great. That's going to bug me. i got to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, I think it's funny that you, a couple of times you said that, you know, Excalibur as a film has to kind of condemn dense things down because otherwise it would need to be a series right and uh, the thing is you can't even do a series now because if you were going to do an honest you know uh, maturely written series about arthur the knights at a round table you would get immediately because well this is just a ripoff of game of thrones yeah unfortunately because now that this modern version of this type of grand mythology now has supplanted the traditional one in the minds of a lot, a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, you know, those of us who grew up. I mean, I remember reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in uh, lit class in high school, you know, yeah. and having a whole section on Arthurian legend. We don't necessarily have that in the schools now. So if you're never introduced to it, King Arthur's just. Oh yeah, he's he's the bad guy on Once Upon a Time this season. You know, don't get me started on that stupidity. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough the show had an entire year of oh check it out, Peter Pan's the bad guy, Captain Hook's the good guy. Aren't we clever? And then they had a half a season of oh we got King Arthur, but he's really a bad guy. Aren't we clever? I'm gonna apologize right now to Hope because I know she likes Once Upon a Time, but mm. I I I just I'm so sick of that. It's like for the love of God, really King Arthur has to be a bad guy. Well, the problem. I have with Once Upon a Time. I've never seen it, so I, I'm I'm just talking out my ass basically. But I like the comic series Fables. Yes. And all Once Upon a Time is is the writer of Fables went to a TV network and said, "Hey, we can make this into a series. This would be great as a TV series." ABC looked at it and said, "Uh, no, thank you anyway," and then did it on their own. Right. So I have a bias against it regardless. And 
I can't watch it, because I asked my sister, who's seen some of it, and I asked her, okay, it's got the princesses, it's got, you know, it's got the Disney characters, the the, the mm-hmm. Disney royals, as you will. Would this be good for my daughter? She said, no. Nope. <laughs> Do not let nope. her watch this. No, it's so, definitely a grown-up show. So, there's, uh, it's another bias. And as we were talking, I looked it up, and the TV series that Nigel Terry was in was called Covington Cross. One season in 1992, he mm. played Sir Thomas Gray. Oh, okay. And it was all I'm about the, the Gray family. I'm not familiar with that one. I'll I remember seeing it in high school, and that was it. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember seeing it anywhere else. I don't even know if it's on DVD or anything. Huh. If it is, it's going on my Amazon wish list. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> If it is, it'll shortly be in Casa del Hendrix. <laughs> let me let me ask you a question. You said you have this on Blu-ray. Is the Blu-ray worth getting? I think so. I mean, it's not like you have... I, I don't remember exactly what special features it has on it, because I've only watched it as a movie so far. Because typically when I'm watching it, there are other people in the house, and I tend to tick off my wife because I love commentaries and behind the scenes. I have watched every minute of footage... On all the extended edition Lord of the Rings discs. <laughs> I've done that too, and I did it when I was living by myself. So. <laughs> so, I don't remember what the special features are, but the sound quality and the picture quality are gorgeous. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it is, in my opinion, it's worth it. I believe it is out of print at the moment, though. So, I got it as a gift. Mm-hmm. I want to say... Not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before. And I don't know how my mom got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would I would look for it. Uh, oh, never mind. Scratch that. According to Amazon, if you go to uh, thetwotruefreaks.com and then click on the Amazon link, you'll be able to find Excalibur Blu-ray from 2011 on, on sale as of... Today, anyway, and today is the day of the snowpocalypse in the Northeast, to date it. Eight ninety nine. Oh, that sounds like a good deal right there. Yeah, eighteen yeah, left in stock according to this. <laughs> or you can get oh, it on, I... or you can get it on DVD for five bucks. I think that might be worth the upgrade because I mean, you know, <clears throat> I see a lot of. Um, I you might not have guessed this, but I do like occasional low-budget, cheapy horror movies. I know you're shocked. It's it's out of character for me. I'm speechless. <laughs> Yeah, but they come out and it's like, oh, well, you can get this on Blu-ray. It's like the Blu-ray is going to make it look worse because it's going to make it look cheaper, you know? Yeah. Whereas a film like Excalibur, the Blu-ray is going to show you the richness of the film itself and is definitely worth the extra four bucks if you have a Blu-ray player to, to upgrade that, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. It, having watched it, I've seen it on VHS taped off of HBO. I've seen it on commercial VHS, and I've seen it on Blu-ray. And I have to say that the Blu-ray is well worth it. It is. Yeah. The the visuals are crisp. The sound quality is great, especially with our subwoofer. For some, some, <laughs> some of that stuff, when they're riding through, you can feel the horse's hooves. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but... I'll definitely you know, check that out. Yeah, yeah, nine bucks on Amazon. Go, go get it through our Amazon link. <laughs> Yeah, please, by all means, use the two true freaks link. <laughs> we need it. We need the kickback. <clears throat> and, uh, according to Honeywell, apparently December was a very good month for the Amazon link. I know I did yeah. all my shopping there. <laughs> well, it's funny because he, he um, for those who, who may not know, on the uh, two true freaks Facebook group, 
Chris will post all of the uh, uh, the highlights of the things that people buy each month. But he said he had to wait until Christmas so as not to spoil anybody's gifts. Yes. So thus now he said he's going to start posting them up again now that Christmas has passed. What was funny was there was one time where he posted like eight or nine things and 95% of them were my brother. <laughs> and Jay's like, yep, that was me. Yep, that was me. Yep, that was me. <laughs> He's like, no, I, I didn't order any Star Trek. I don't like Star Trek. Yep, that one was me. Yep, that was me. <laughs> yeah, well, he just did the other day. He posted the ones from December, and I was looking through, and was like, hey, that one's mine. Yeah. Because <laughs> I ordered, my dad has just rediscovered uh, the Gatlin Brothers. Ah. And so I got him the greatest hits of the Gatlin Brothers, and that happened to be on the the uh, the list that Chris had posted. Every every time the, there's one thing I buy routinely on Amazon that every time it shows up he always likes to post, and that's the uh, uh, the the flea and tick medication for my cats. <laughs> for some reason he's like, oh check it out, Frontline Plus. I'm like, why are you putting that up? Who cares that I bought flea and tick medicine for the cats? <laughs> <laughs> The cats aren't real happy about it, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, well, I think uh, having gotten to Flea and Tick Medicine, I'm going to say that we have pretty much covered this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think so. And, and and like I said, I I really want to thank you for reaching out to me to watch this, just to give me an excuse to watch it. I mean, we we were talking about this before, as far as how many move before we were on the air about how many movies we have and stuff. And sometimes you get so caught up in okay, well we're three episodes behind on this show, and then we got to watch two episodes of this on Hulu. We got to do you know, it's like sometimes just to sit down and have an excuse to watch a movie you haven't seen in a long time. It, it's 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 a rare thing, and so you to give me this excuse to sit down and not only rewatch Excalibur but show it to my wife for the first time that was a, I really appreciated that that was a real treat and I had a blast absolute blast revisiting Excalibur here well I'm glad you enjoyed it I'm glad that your your wife had at least some interest in it <laughs> yeah well see she's into uh she, she's she's into Arthurian legend and oh good you know, stuff like that too so uh yeah so th this was kind of, I knew that she would watch this one with me I said yeah this one will be up your alley because you'll appreciate this it's not it's not horror it's not monsters it's it's legend you know oh good okay well I'm glad she had a good time with it well mm -hmm. uh speaking of a good time how about you tell the uh, lovely listeners where they can find your voice on the two true freaks network Certainly. Uh, my main show is Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju is, of course, Japanese giant monsters, and so I take a look at all sorts of Japanese giant monster culture, including uh, movies and TV shows, comics, video games, uh, toys, anything I can uh, dream of to cover. I'm also one of the co-hosts over on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is our ongoing horror podcast. Uh, right now, we're kind of in the middle of uh, a, an intermezzo period called uh, in between covering some series we're doing, or each host gets to pick something that they want to cover. And those are my two main shows. I pop up every now and again on Back to the Bins or Who True Freaks or uh, other shows as I'm as a mask. And you can also check out my almost never updated Hawkman blog <laughs> at Being Carter Hall, which is at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. And I would recommend all those shows and the blog, because when some Hawkman stuff comes out and, that you post on, I find it very your take very interesting, because, I mean, you know more about Hawkman than anybody else I know, so it's... Yeah, it's one of, the, it's one of those great skills you have that you can't put on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> Can 
kind of like me with Quasar. Is <laughs> unless you're like Hope and you go become a writer for a, a a geek news outlet, you know, putting a I I own a complete run of every Hawkman series. No employer is going to look for that necessarily, especially not in the engineering field, you know. So, <laughs> well, you never know with us engineers. Yeah. They, they might see that as a plus. They might see it yeah. as a minus. <laughs> Best just Mr. not. Mr. Jack and Eddie, I, I see it. I see it says here that you can identify Godzilla suits uh, by year on site. Is that true? Yes. Yes, it is. Like our clients aren't looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you again for being on, Luke. I I had a fun time talking to you about the movie and rewatching it for for this episode and I hope we can do this again sometime oh yeah this has been great uh, anytime you'd like to have me on I'd, I'd love to come back this has been a lot of fun alright and uh, I don't know what the episode you're going to hear next everyone is but I'm pretty sure you're, it's going to have a guest on it I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy it so we'll see you next time thank you for listening to the Hammer Podcast if you have any questions or comments please feel free to send an email to Gene at thehammerstrikes.com. If you like what you've heard, please visit the Patreon page, which is located at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes, and consider becoming a sponsor of the show. Please be sure to check out The Hammer Strikes on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and YouTube. The Hammer Podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.